You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Uh, with that said, so tonight, really very thrilled. Uh, both our guests have made it their life's work thinking about sound. Uh, how we hear, uh, the nuances associated with how sound affects our lives and its presence in the world. Uh, we're very honored to have with us David Rothenberg. He is the series editor of Terra Nova Books and also a professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He's the author of numerous books investigating music in nature, including Why Birds Sing, Survival of the Beautiful, Bug Music, How Insects Gave Us Rhythm and Noise. His writings have been translated into more than 11 languages, and among his 21 music CDs is One Dark Night, I Left My Silent House on the venerable ECM label. So tonight, we are celebrating the book Nightingales in Berlin, Searching for the Perfect Sound. It's been published by University of Chicago Press. Uh, Professor Rothenberg is joined by none other than Elliot Sharp. Very, very honored to have them both here with us. Uh, Mr. Sharp is a composer, multi-instrumentalist, and central figure in the avant-garde and experimental music scenes in New York since the late 70s. I mean, he's collaborated with so many different people. He's produced music for duets, string quartets, orchestra, done solo work. Uh, his collaborations have included people like Christian Marclay, Niels Klein, Bobby Privet, and so on and so forth. Um, he's received numerous honors for his work, including the Berlin Prize in Music in 2015. His composition, Storm of the Eye, for violinist Hilary Hahn, appeared in her Grammy-winning uh, album, In 27 Pieces. So tonight, we are celebrating Irrational Music, which is published by Terra Nova Books. So we have a connection here. This is distributed by our friends at MIT Press. Uh, it's at once a memoir, a manifesto, and much, much more. Such a great honor and a delight to have you both with us. Thank you. And, and certainly to be here in City Lights when I was in junior high school, if you carried around you know, a tattered red-covered copy of Gregory Corso's Gasoline, you, everyone knew you were weird, which was good. Thanks so much. This, this really is the best bookstore in America. We can't believe you invited us to come here. It's amazing. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm happy to be here with my friend Elliot Sharp. We, we're on a world tour. We've been to, from New York to Berlin to London to Oslo speaking and performing together. And, uh, you know, I decided to become a publisher because of this book, because, you know, I was reading the manuscript. I go, this is, you know, this is pretty good. You know, how come it's, you know, so hard to get publishers to want to publish this and at the same time I was looking at a lot, like, a lot of books coming from different publishers and they seem to be like you know more and more expensive but printed on worse and worse paper and like you know like I figured like, I could do better I know how to where to print things cheaply that it looked nice you know I should just do it this book should come out so this is the first book we published in this series and um, you know years ago I edited a journal for MIT Press called Terra Nova and then I, I asked them, you know, would you, I'm going to publish these books, would you distribute them? And then they just said no. And, and most of the stuff I do, people tend to say no, 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 no. And then um, 
abruptly one day they said, what were those books you want to distribute? We have blank, some blank pages in our catalog. You know, I, we need to fill them today. Do you have some books? Like, uh, you already said no. Well, no, no, you know, we'll do it. Just what are the books? So abruptly they changed their mind, and I'm so glad that we done that and we can have these books spread all over the world and this is the first one and many more to come and so it's great we've got the man himself here in this picture sitting right there <laughs> Elliot Sharp oh. irrational music right. whatever that means thank you David yeah. so much yeah well I'll read a couple of different excerpts that cover some of the different territory explored in the book the book is in the form of a memoir but I do tend to digress, and uh, that is reflected both in my speaking and in the writing. This is from uh, an introduction to one of the chapters, more in the, in the philosophical vein, shall we say. <clears throat> Why should artificial divisions between the various disciplines of musical theory and practice be enforced or even exist? Music is one translation of the inner ear. At the core of the creative impulse mind, Mind is flexible, porous, quicksilver, open. Whether improvising or creating through composed works, I always hope that they can be heard without the framing effects of the preconceptions regarding ensemble, setting, even dress on stage. How do we listen or write with the spontaneity and unpredictability that might be pre present in an improvisation? When improvising, can the music display the inevitability and arc of a well-structured composition? Will the listener treat music heard in a rock club with the same attention and gravity that they might in a concert hall? Can they feel the music in their guts when sitting in one of those red plush seats, beloved of Morty? And we might get to, that's Morton Feldman, we might get to that later. As the inner ear gathers its abilities, these questions may become moot as sonic strategies become well-worn pathways, deeply ingrained in unconscious actions. Work in any realm will inform and feed back to the others without restriction or limitation. The essence of composing for me is to take the creative impulse within the inner ear and then to translate the output into the truest form of that impulse in whatever medium. Inextricably linked to this action is the notion of the synesthetic. The output may smear across the full frequency spectrum of sensations and perceptions. Hearing the sound generates the score that triggers the taste that catalyzes the music, or the reverse, permutation. Mind doesn't make walls or insist on rigid tactics. To translate inner to output might mean picking up an instrument and improvising. It might mean meticulously placing every element in a fully notated score for orchestra. It might not even lead to the making of music at all. As I developed strategies, my aesthetic sense coalesced around certain gestures that I found deep resonance with. I tried to resist defining my work so completely that it would be recognizable as a style, a danger to be avoided, the fine line between personal style and self-parody. Now this says uh, in 1989, <clears throat> I was in preparation for upcoming European tours with my band Carbon. The personnel had gone into flux and the new touring band would include harpist Zena Parkins, bassist Mark Sloan, David Weinstein on keyboard and sampler, and blind idiot god drummer Ted Epstein. That's a band, not a description of his drumming. <laughs> blind idiot god, they were an incredible band, actually. Anyway, so for these tours, we would be joined by, by Bashir Attar, the leader of the master musicians of Jajuka. Attracted by its aura of psychedelic exoticism, I picked up a copy of Brian Jones Presents the Pipers of Pan at Jajuka when it was first released in 1971. 
Enthralled by its intensity and otherworldly ambience, I incorporated this village music of the Moroccan Atlas Mountains into the soundtrack of my college years. This record led me to a greater exploration of Moroccan music, including the Paul Bowles collections on folkways, as well as recordings on the Lyricord and UNESCO labels. In the early 1980s, through my friend Charity Martin, a San Franciscan, budding ethnomusicologist, clarinetist, and identical twin sister of Hope, I had heard tales of her travels to Jujuka and encounters with Bashir Attar, the young leader of the musicians, a multi-instrumentalist who revered Brian Jones and Jimi Hendrix. In 1988, I again heard talk of Bashir through another friend, New York photographer Sherry Nutting. She had met Bashir in Tangier through Bowles and told me that he would soon be visiting New York. They later married. When he arrived, we first met at Sherry's for dinner, a relaxed occasion with lots of wine and laughter. Bashir was not tall, but with a large aura, slim, sporting a trim mustache and afro. He was an excellent cook and made most of what we ate that evening, fish, couscous, aubergines. Next, he visited my studio just to drink coffee and listen to music, North African music from various countries, Ornette Coleman, whom Bashir had played with in Jajuka, Korean Samulnori, country blues. I played him some of what I was doing with Carbon, and we began to play together, finding our way to that outside place, sessions that led to gigs as an informal duo at CBGB's and the Knitting Factory. Bashir taught me some of the Jajuka rhythms, which I translated to programs on a Roland TR-707 drum machine. Bashir loved the drum machine because it could relentlessly repeat a pattern without the variations spontaneously invented by human drummers, a feature that he felt was a distraction. Philosophically speaking, I was diametrically opposed to this, as I thrive on the continual elaboration of rhythm as produced by my many favorite drummers. But I was keen to find my way into the music of Jajuka. I wanted to hear and make the music as Bashir might, and if this meant bowing to Bashir's judgment, so be it. In 1989, the appropriately named Enemy Records asked us to make an album, which we accomplished very quickly under low-budget conditions. We experimented with sounds and textures in our attempt to create a fictional locus halfway between New York and Jujuka. I made extensive use of the ebo on guitar to create sustained textures in the makam sections of the pieces. A free time, a free time intro where material for later exploration in the piece is introduced, over which Bashir would improvise. The Igbo was also used to generate a massive, dark, and salty, sweet sound for solos, reminiscent of both the bowed string instrument and the raita, the double reed horn. With the slab, I could create, this was one of my invented and self-constructed instruments. It's like a, a, a mallet bass. I could create sounds reminiscent of both a bass and a bendir, the Moroccan frame drum. Jane Tomkevich added actual bendir as well. Bashir played raita, lira, a type of wooden flute, and the gimbri, a lute with a goatskin soundboard. With this project, he had his first experiences with overdubbing and got it immediately, building up multiple tracks of raita to recreate the sound of the larger ensemble of the village. This record was titled In New York, and though out of print for many years, it is now available again. Bashir joined Carbon for our European tours in October, November of 90, and again in January of 91, in which the band would build up a seething intensity under Bashir's magnificent Raita solos. At the end of our fall 90 tour, we were scheduled to fly back to New York City on Pan Am from Frankfurt, just before Thanksgiving. Things were heating up in the Middle East prior to the first Gulf War. Terrorist alerts always seemed to be imminent, with security tents and paranoia the rule at airports. Arriving at the Frankfurt Flughafen, we entered the security lines at check-in where we were separated and asked the ritual questions. 
It was necessary for me to supply Bashir's interrogator with our tour itineraries, posters, newspaper previews and reviews, hotel and travel receipts, and all other related documents. As he carefully perused our materials, we waited, here it is. We waited for nearly 30 minutes with no results. Our group was taking up all four of the security stations, and behind us, an impatient crowd was rumbling as the flight would be departing in less than one hour, and everyone was determined to be on it. Frustrated at the inaction and getting anxious, I beckoned over two stern-looking security officers who seemed to be supervisors. I asked what the problem was. After they consulted, I was told that since Bashir was an Arab, he couldn't be cleared for the flight, and therefore none of us could fly. I pointed out that he was not an Arab, but Maghrebi. He had a Moroccan passport. Morocco was considered a friendly nation. No go. I then added that Bashir was a USA resident with a green card and married to an American citizen whom I had known for years. No go. Dumbfounded, I asked if we were all expected to spend the rest of our lives in the Frankfurt airport. Shrug. I then stated that Bashir was an internationally renowned musician who had played with the Rolling Stones and... Before I could finish, the security guards looked at each other and said, the Rolling Stones? Okay, you can fly. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> I'm going to do one more short segment to address the red plus seats uh, mentioned. Hmm. Now we're in Buffalo in 1974. I had just arrived there to be a junior graduate student. The Composers Forum was a slightly formal seminar within the music department, meeting on Friday afternoons and planning a concert for each semester. Morton Feldman held court, a large man with a big belly, usually dressed in a white shirt and suit pants. He presented an imposing figure with his horn rims, pompadour, and ever-present camel, an inch of ash perpetually ready to drop. When he was the center of attention, he would relax and be generous with his thoughts and digressions, waxing philosophical, reminiscing about the good old days of avant-garde music in the 50s, issuing pronouncements about what should and should not be done in the composition of music, and intimidating the generally fearful and insecure students, except those anointed by him to carry the torch by a pale imitation of his own work, and who thereby felt entitled to pass judgment on everyone else. If there was any challenge, self-righteous anger would take over. I recall a contentious concert planning session in which one of the anointed declared himself to be an aristocrat and therefore not subject to the considerations that apply to the rest of us composers. Feldman acquiesced with his silence. In November of 74, inspired by political activities that would later have a dramatic effect on my life and career in Buffalo, I began work on Attica Brothers' life cycle for presentation at our March 1975 concert. Composed for violin, cello, both double bass and electric bass, orchestral percussionist Donald Knack, Bobby Previtt playing a rock drum kit, and Kunga drummer Spoon, plus my own electric guitar, the piece was structured in two parts over a continuous pulse played by the Kunga drummer. A conductor with time cards cued the various entries and transitions. The first section featured a through-composed seven-note pentatonic melody for the strings, stretched over five minutes and harmonized microtonally to produce an angry, bluesy buzzing, while the drummers exchanged terse blasts notated graphically and placed on the timeline. In the second section, drums and bass played a through-composed groove while the strings and guitar wailed like sirens with glissandi read from a graphic score and the percussionist generated earthquakes. 
As we prepared to commence the performance, Feldman rose from his seat in the packed house and pointing at the conga drummer, shouted, where's his music stand? I replied that he didn't need one because his entrance and exit were cued by the conductor. I didn't want to have to explain then and there to the audience, but the lack of music stand was intended to make a point about the role of the congas. Feldman's answer was to climb on stage, grab a music stand from the wings, and bang it down in front of the conga player, whose jaw dropped, his eyes glazed over with fear, and then he announced to the, to the auditorium, now you can play the piece. As, as before, Morty called me into his office the next morning. I was the uh, maintenance person for the electronic music studio, and Morty's office was right next door, so we would see each other quite frequently. And, and in a very friendly manner, there was always uh, brief conversations. So, Morty called me into his office the next morning. You know, he raged, you put too much, too much sociology in your music. And I really can't imitate his accent, but I'm going to try. Music should be listened to sitting in red plus seats, but your music, you have to sit on the floor. Thank you. What did he say about improvisation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in my, after my first concert in Buffalo, Morty called me into his office and said, you know, improvisation, I don't buy it. <laughs> no, this, this improvisation, is, I don't buy it. Yeah, this, and this is from a, I mean, I, I mean, I loved Morty's music. He was one of the reasons I was there. Lejar and Hiller, a great and unrecognized composer, was my advisor, a real pioneer in algorithmic composition, computer music. But Morty lorded over everybody. And, uh, you know, I mean, Morty's early music was very indeterminate, but the classical music world was very suspicious of improvisation. They felt that it was cheating if you didn't e write it down, even if it was just something graphic. I mean, Morty, Bobby Previtt used to love to raise it. Morty Feldman, he'll be remembered for dividing the pitches into low, medium, and high. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Morty did write some of it some of the greatest orchestral music, especially his last pieces, Coptic Light, for Samuel Beckett. I mean, amazing music. But, you know, you learn to separate the artist from their art, and sometimes you have to when dealing. I learned that when I moved to New York, and I met a lot of my great jazz heroes and played with a bunch of them and hung out and realized that life had dealt them some strange cards, and how it manifest was sometimes not that uh, conducive to further living, you could say. We're gonna we're gonna have a you know the trajectory of the evening. David's gonna read, and then we're gonna do some, a little bit of improvising. And uh, unfortunately, we have no red plush seats for everybody. But uh, oh, we have the floor. The floor. Yeah, yeah. yeah so fold up the chairs, and, and and then we'll have a Q and A and discussion. If anyone has any thoughts or questions, we're happy to entertain them. And I hopefully, and I hope they will be entertained. Hopefully, not too much sociology. Well, if you are a musician and philosopher, as I am supposed to be, then you, you're always caught up in this, how much to play, how much to say, how many books to write that seem like they, they keep circling back around the same things. You know, I don't know why this happens, but I guess, you know, we, we're stuck with the same ideas and we just approach them again and again throughout our lives. You know, I already wrote a book about why birds sing that has a chapter on nightingales. Although when I wrote that book, you know, I, I didn't 
really think so much about how the nightingale is one of the best birds to play music along with live because once they start to sing, they won't stop. And when, uh, you know, I, I tell people I wrote this book called Nightingales in Berlin, most of them don't think it's about nightingales. They have a lot of ideas <laughs> as to what they think it might be about, but I say, no, it actually is about going to Berlin to play music with nightingales. It's about nature in the city. It's about, um, it's kind of an argument, sort of literary argument against the idea that, you know, nature is over here, humanity's over here and that we're just trashing the planet, there's no hope, and we've got to leave it alone. I spent years writing about wilderness, and you know, environmental philosophers, and nature writers, and this, this, a lot of it gets honestly hopeless and difficult. And, and I, I want to find, I really did feel a glimmer of hope in the idea that, you know, in the human world, together with nature, there's this possibility we might all somehow coexist. So that's kind of what this book is about. Here's how it begins. Are you surprised there are nightingales in Berlin? They've flown thousands of miles to get here, up from Africa, over the sea like refugees of the air. They sing from wells of silence, their voices piercing the urban noise. Each has his chosen perch to come back to every year. We know they will return, yet when they do arrive, every song still seems a wonder. Of all the days to schedule a midnight concert in Berlin's Treptower Park, somehow we've chosen May 9th, the one night people descend upon this place in the thousands. It's the 69th anniversary of the end of World War II. The park's going to be full of people when the birds begin to sing. The location itself lends the timing further significance. This is where the Great Battle of Berlin is remembered, during which 100,000 died in less than two months. Here stands an extravagant war memorial built by the Soviets to commemorate their victory in what was once East Germany. Upon entering the memorial grounds, one crosses a jagged, abstract, constructivist gate with a menacing hammer and sickle. At the far end, about 500 feet away, is a 98-foot-tall bronze Russian soldier in a long war coat holding up a child, as if to reassure the boy he is safe from all the horrors commemorated around him. Beneath the towering statue are 16 heavy concrete sarcophagi with realist murals carved into their surfaces, depicting the course of the battle and the courage of its commanders, including more than one image of Stalin himself. Well, it's after 11 p.m. The humans are slowly filing out of Treptower Park now that the annual memorial concert is over. I'm wandering around, hearing the nightingales tentatively begin to sing. I stop for a beer at a small kiosk, and a guy bumps into me and hears me speaking English. Hey, you are American? What are you doing here? On this night of all possible nights, he glares at me from a few inches away, vodka on his breath. His friend pulls him back. Oh, you must excuse Yuri, says his companion. He has had a bit too much to drink. Yuri spits and rumbles away, staring me down as he turns. His friend is more accommodating. My name is Oleg. May I ask you a question? I take a slow sip of beer. Sure, why not? Why do you Americans say you won the war? You lost 25,000 men. Russia lost 25 million. It was not your war to win. My history was hazy. Weren't we and the Russians on the same side? 
Far more Russians did indeed die, however. After all, it was their continent. And here we were drinking together where one of the war's bloodiest battles went down. The fields are green, now the trees grow tall. Well, after almost an hour discussing the weight of history with Oleg and Yuri, we come to some kind of agreement, if only because I agreed to listen. Well, he put his arm around my soldier as he tried to steady himself. At least there's one American here I can trust, says Oleg, before he and his friend wobble off into the night. Everyone seems to be deserting the park. I can't believe it. It's 11.30 p.m. These festivities are over. That's just about when Berlin usually wakes up. At least the nightingales are waking up. At midnight, I'll meet my audience and we'll all head into the night, seeking the perfect moment in a nightingale song, which there's still room for humans to join in. This nightingale is one famous bird. Every language has something clever to say about him, trying in vain to capture a sound not made for us to understand. Nothing can stop us wanting to make sense of it. In some tongues, his name means a thousand voices, in others, the sound of the night. Eos, Solove, Fulumula, Urexindor, Ushagui, Pasirilanti, Ritumulaxtigala, Satakeli, Ubik, and Bulbul, beyond the more familiar Rossignol, Nachtigal, Rusignor. Some of these words seem unparsable, strange, onomatopoetics that mirror his beguile. I imagine in one of those languages the word for nightingale must mean rhythmic madman, because the rhythms matter more than the notes for this avian singer. The spaces between the beats are essential for the possibility of our collaboration. The bird song leaves room for his peers or for anyone. He taunts us with the possibility to answer. Just as I prepare to get my instrument out, we see them, our friends, the nightingale scientists, Silke Kipper and her associate, Sarah Kiefer, leaders of the Free University's Nightingale Research Project. They've chosen this exact moment to do some playback experiments with this very bird. They're not pleased to see us. What are you doing here, David? You know this is our study area. We don't want you ruining our data collection. You know, I had talked about this with them earlier. I know, I say, with apology, but this bird is so special. We've listened to many. We keep coming back to him. How do you know? Well, I was playing here just the other night. Playing what? You know, clarinet voice, some electronic sounds. What kind of electronic sounds? I heard you just now. It sounds like you have nightingale songs on that iPad of yours. Uh, yes, I confess. We were sampling the bird and playing him back his own song, looped, remixed, pitch changed, sliced and diced. The glow of my screen started to illuminate a sense of betrayal on her face. This bird is ruined for us. You've compromised our research subject. You've messed with his brain, his whole sense of aesthetics. Who knows what your music has done to him? Silka sighs. Okay, you win. Look, I see you've got a lot of people gathered here. You don't want to disappoint them. She turns, dejected, mumbling to herself, ruined, ruined, another experiment, ruined. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what do these birds sound like? How many of you have, have never heard a nightingale? Yeah, they don't live around here. They're a little hard to find. I know that when I first heard one, I was totally shocked at how strange and electronic it sounded. Not the mellifluous, beautiful melodies that I, I could imagine being slowed down and sung by Pamela Z right here. Nothing like that. They're just kind of crazy. And so 
as I said earlier, why play along with a bird like this? Because once he starts singing, he cannot stop. You can play a loud, homemade, eight-string electric guitar through a big amplifier in front of a nightingale. He's going to keep singing. And if he, in fact, is competing with us, he's going to win. <laughs> we're going to get tired before he does. But maybe they're not competing. Maybe they just want us to join in. You want to join in? It's very rare, although sometimes done, to play the bass clarinet because it's a big thing to carry around. But on the cover of this CD, which has Berlin and Helsinki and Nightingales, there is a bass clarinet player in the corner. And fortunately, David brought this bass clarinet because there really isn't a guitar amp here, which I would normally be playing. But I did bring my mouthpiece. And uh, tomorrow, you know, we're going to switch these instruments. Yeah, we're going to be at Tom's place in Berkeley. Yeah. I don't know how people know that, but it's, I've heard good things. I haven't been before. You'll have books behind you also. Oh, there are books? Great. <laughs> and then on Saturday night, I'm playing a house concert in the Berkeley Hills at Harry Bernstein's. I don't know if it has a name, but if you go to my Facebook page, which is easy to find, it's easy to get that information. So uh, other tidbits of information you might find in this book is that these, these nightingales come back, as I mentioned briefly, to the same tree every year that have like 10 years. So you, we know which birds are the good ones. Come so then does them. another bird choose that spot? Uh, after they expire, yeah, they may not be as good. but you know, Or they might be a descendant that also... This is what this now research project is trying if, to if, figure uh, out. Yeah, yeah. What happens, it, as you learn more about the science in the book, is that it becomes this convoluted um, tale of trying to figure things out that we might not be able to measure. And you also learn that there really is, in Germany, a place called the Max Planck Institute of Empirical Aesthetics, <laughs> where they try and measure not only what Nightingale songs are the best ones, but there really is a project like what does like reading the complex metaphors in poetry actually do to your brain? They study things like that. Is it actually good or bad for you? So they they dissect the students' brains here, yeah. at the end of the semester. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
It's a good question. Often not. It depends. You know, they, they don't want to be seen. They really, and they pick. You know, I've done this mostly in Berlin and Helsinki. There's a big difference in Berlin. The main thing is it's quite dark, and they they are in one place, kind of hidden. They don't want you to see them. They're very close to you. They're hiding in thickets. In Helsinki, the birds have this problem. It's not dark. They're singing in June there, it's light all the time, it really bothers them. And they, they keep moving while singing because they know you can sort of see them. And then later in the season, once they've like already found a mate and they've built their nest, they, they will sing more visibly like as the sun sets, like right on, on display. It'll be much easier to see. The same bird that's hiding a few weeks earlier is kind of out there. How many miles is the migration? It's a good question. They go from the two species, one from East Africa, one to West Africa. So I know they go from Gambia, the ones in Western Europe, and then they can go as far as from Mozambique, the ones that go to Eastern Europe, the and two they species. rely on darkness for, as a time to sing, why did they go so far north where the light 
That's a great question. Like, like you know, <laughs> it's like people need darkness to sleep, but they're still living up there. And maybe you saw yesterday in the New York Times there was a story a town in Norway, close to where I was a few weeks ago, said we want to abolish time. We're not going <laughs> to schedule our lives in the summer. There's no appointments. Like, why shouldn't the grocery store be open at 2 a.m. if that's when people, when the sun is out and they're hungry? You know, so they're, they're defying time. And I think the birds just like, oh, it's not dark here. We've got to move constantly, but you know, we're here. Otherwise, it's a great place to be in the summer. Like, you, know, you can see why they go that far north. And of course, as it gets warmer, the range extends a little bit, a little bit further north. So they start to appear in Norway and Sweden. There's a famous Thomas Tronströmer poem about the nightingale at its northern limit. How uh, how consistent are their songs? I mean, like, are the how varied? I guess are the well, yeah. I mean, this is something that that is somewhat documented. That you know, the the common nightingale, the one in Western Europe, they they have between two hundred and three hundred individual songs. And then the thrush nightingale, you'll find in Eastern Europe, they have fewer, maybe between fifty and hundred. It's still pretty confusing. And some birds are uh, one paper. Some scientists' research said they have orderly birds and disorderly birds. <laughs> <laughs> orderly ones are like composers. Woody Feldman, I like them. They, they sing their phrase in the same order every time. Huh. Disorderly ones, you don't know what they're going to do next. Yeah. They're like improvisers. <laughs> and we're not sure which ones are, like, are better or worse. So which ones are more, uh, you know, have more success mating, or, or they, you know, this is supposed to be a sexually selected trait. That is developed like the females really wanted more and more songs. Like the average bird has a very nice song, a songbird like a chickadee, or a white-throated sparrow. That's it. That's all they need to do. Why does the nightingale have to go on and on and on and on at night? You know, you know, it's, it, evolution is full of possibilities. Like weird stuff that can evolve in extreme situations. Like um, another book I wrote was about the survival of the beautiful. Like it didn't have to be that way. You didn't have to have peacocks with crazy tails. Like you know, many animals have a little bit of ornamentation. You know, a bird has a little red crest or something, or a brown spot right here. But to have all this excess of crazy feathers or songs that go on and on and on, it's like just a possibility that these could be selected for extreme aesthetic behavior. There's even birds that build artworks in Australia, bowerbirds, they make sculptures, they are not nests, they're not practical things, they make these artworks to impress the females. And they're not usually impressed, of course, like, <laughs> they go to the next one, there's nothing interesting here, you know. And so this just demonstrates that in the, in the evolution of life, the possibility for sheer creative excess is there. Just to, and so to the nightingale is unique in having this intensity and leaving space after every phrase you can Ooh. join in. You know, and that's just kind of crazy. So they respond in any way to your music? Yeah, they'll change out of the hundreds of, the disorderly ones at least, will change out of the, the hundreds of possible things. They'll use a different phrase. You know, that, that, that uh, you, 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 you know, you feel very much that they're, they're engaged with you. I mean, one thing I often, when I talk about this stuff, say there's a vast difference between, like, the criteria for truth in science and art. Like, you know, the scientists will say, okay, have you done a controlled test? Have you played this way? Have you seen what happens when you're there and not there? You can measure, like, how much is the song different when you're humans there. And I, I would say, well, actually, I haven't really done that, because for me, it's a success even if you have one kind of encounter. Somehow is beautiful. I mean, the 
audience of humans and maybe birds seems to get something out of it. Like well, I know that certain birds are more interested in this activity than others. There's certain birds you come back to again and again and again. One of these birds lives outside this apartment building where one day this couple came out fuming and angry. And, and like, this bird was singing beautifully until you showed up. Unfortunately, this didn't make it in the book. The book was already done by the time. You know, you're ruining him. Not the scientists said the same thing. You know, so you, you destroy, you know, you're messing with our bird. And, and, and this, this woman kicks the microphone, almost rolls into the water. You know, hey, you know, get out of here, I'm calling the police. And then, uh, you know, so we're kind of packing up and they're fuming and I kind of ask her husband, so, so like, you like this bird singing? You know, oh yeah, it's really beautiful. He starts to talk about the song. And he said, you know, I have a book upstairs about someone like you. It says this clarinetist who plays with birds. <laughs> yeah. I think I know who that is. You know, did you like it? Oh, I thought it was pretty self-indulgent. <laughs> I could tell him, you know, I know him. And then, so, you saw my earlier book, and then, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of strange that they would have this book there. And then, uh, you know, we eventually kind of diffused them sent them away, calmed them. We went to this other spot, and the, the two other members of the band, one guy was a Syrian refugee, played the oud, who had like escaped through all these perilous things to get here, and the, the percussionist was a nurse who works with Doctors Without Borders. And he said, you know, you should come on one of our tours, I think you could handle this, this like crazy people we have to deal with in these jobs. <laughs> and so, but mostly people were kind of uh, very supportive of this activity, and even uh, Although the book begins with this scientist encounter, the scientists who are now running that project are much more um, supportive of the whole idea. And it's interesting to see that since I started doing this you know, five years ago, there's a growing interest in Berlin around nightingales. And this, this, they've always been there. And there's a lot of them. People say, why are there so many in Berlin? Mostly because they don't clean up the parks very well. They're kind of shaggy and messy. And the, the green, you know, there's a lot of thickets and underbrush, places they can hide. And also the green kind of extends into the countryside. So they can find their way in there. But that being said, there's an, in some ways more nightingales singing in the city than in the countryside, which is kind of strange to think. But it's it's uh, you know it, it's a one glimmer of hope that humanity and nature can somehow coexist and interact. Oh yeah, you see owls hunting them at night. Owls swooping uh -huh. by, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, that, you know, you know. I read also something I'd read about the owls are swooping around looking for them, but, but uh, and uh, a few times I've seen them doing that, but I never saw them. But they don't hunt by sound. Owls? How do owls hunt? I, I know they see silhouettes. They, they have a yeah, night vision. I don't, I don't know if they're listening to the nightingale song and picking them off that Because that would be way. a good way to locate them. It would be, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think they, you know, sometimes they get them. They don't. I heard one mid-song. I never saw that, but what, what truth, you know, the, image, when the females arrive, the males, their song gets a little more shorter and flustered. Like, they, they don't sing their best when the audience is there. It's interesting. So, kind of get a little agitated. And then, and then I've heard that happen when the female shows up and then the song starts to get a little... Drummers are like that, yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have to replace them with machines. Like this. Do they nest in the thickets the nests are kind of, they're kind of closer to the ground, I think. Interesting. Yeah. Were there others um, 
animals that were attracted to your music or that you built relationships with during this time? You know, in Berlin, the there's other birds that get involved, in this, especially if you're doing it, you know, when it overlaps with, with if you're really late, when it starts to be closer to dawn, then the blackbirds will start to sing. But one thing I've noticed is that a lot of other birds are very happy to be photographed, and the nightingales like to hide. So some of these birds you want to photograph, and during the day they sing less. So we wanted to film some of them, and they would universally be hiding. Other birds would come out and want to be kind of in front of the camera. <laughs> Sometimes to a very la laughable degree. Uh, you know, we made a film of this also, which is now going to film festivals. And the, the ones we filmed are usually on very long lenses from far away when they didn't really notice we were watching. I'm uh, interested in the improvisational process that when, when you were playing, um, the both of you and I noticed sometimes you would sort of come in sync and then you know, just go your separate ways in the, in the music. And I'm, I'm just curious how much of that is intentional and if, if that's something that you would find that happens with, with birds. Do you ever, you know, do you seek to like come in the sync with them or do you have any? Well, I mean, I don't play a lot with birds, but yeah. with with people, you do find that you each have your own particular language, a syntax and a vocabulary when you're improvising, and when you're intersecting with someone else, you're kind of operating in a predictive way in terms of both what they're going to do and what you're going to do. And so part of it is hearing an inevitability in the sound, you hear a certain arc in the melody and of course it's going to go to this point where this note will be the point of resolution and you reach either a, a harmony or a unison i mean i call it a simultaneity and you have to be able to adapt so you listen and you don't necessarily listen consciously the process is very much a visceral process you're just you're doing it if you're really doing it you're not so consciously aware of it, the process happens outside of yourself. You lose the uh, the accountant. It's what I call the that that aspect of your consciousness that takes care of making decisions while you're improvising. So when it's really working, the music is just there, and you you find yourself as surprised as anyone else when you reach these simultaneities. Sometimes in a good way, sometimes not. Sometimes you say, "Oh, how predictable," you know. <laughs> I was wondering um, if they sang, if their um, range was within the, totally within the range of human hearing, or if they might have like some kind of hypersonic, or like parts of their songs that you can't hear. I think in the case of most songbirds, that they hear a smaller range of frequencies than we do. So like, you know, they don't hear as low as we do, and they hear the high frequencies aren't so different in most birds. Hummingbirds, though, they sing ultrasonic songs that, mm -hmm. that we can't hear at all. And so, with th There's various animals that make sounds that they themselves can't hear. Mm. It's pretty interesting. We might be doing the same. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like a lot of our communication is probably pheromonal. I mean, a lot of animals will... Right. And We're not aware exactly. Yeah, and yeah. of course it's a question of finding that the way to quantize it, the way to, uh, to quantify it, to measure it. Yeah. I mean, you, you go into a room of people listening to someone making music, and you might not have any visual cues as to whether or not the people are enjoying the music or not, but you can tell as a musician if people are there or not. There is a, 
a kind of chemical synchronization that mm. you, sen you sense, but not necessarily consciously. I mean, I, go, I think a lot of our communication happens on an unconscious level, and then the chain of information is brought up to a conscious level, but we can operate quite well without it being conscious. There's a lot of theories now that uh, humans are def define a lot of their activities on the basis of their gut bacteria, their interactions with each other. So. In those discussions of language that are coming up, uh, a lot of communication, uh, they say, oh, animals don't have a language, but I mean, like, the skunk will go like this, and he's trying to skip. You know, animals use a lot of movements more, almost like a, a dance, so that they know what they're saying, and if you watch them, like if you have a rabbit, there's this whole thing about language. This is what your rabbit is saying right now. You know, or, or dogs, if they give you, you know, if they're young, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're licking your lips, they're anxious, they might bite you. So maybe our, our communication, a lot of it could be gestures or, you know, communication isn't just words. And that's what's interesting when you focus it into the sonic realm in an improvisational setting or as a composer what you're really trying to do, what you think you're doing, is uh, creating a psychoacoustic environment for the listeners as the music goes down. You know, what does musical communication actually mean? What is a piece of music trying to say other than itself? You can say, oh, this song is happy or this is sad or, you know, I heard a someone played piano earlier today saying this piece is about the, the first image of a black hole. <laughs> but is it really? You know, like, like it's, it's, music is so important to us that we don't really know what it means exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, and the I, thing I think is, you know, two different people will hear the same piece. Right, and, and, but if you, if, you, if you imagine, as most human cultures have done, they hear these certain kinds of sounds, birds are making, say, those are songs. People have felt that there's something musical about this, and therefore something both ambiguous and, and immediately comprehensible. We, we get it. We're not trying to translate what it means. Like, I don't think we need to translate what, what the nightingale is spending hours and hours singing about because it's music. It's all these patterns. And once we, we think of it as music, it's, it's, it's paradoxically open to us rather than closed. We, you know, we don't feel like it's, it's somebody talking without understanding. It's, music is comprehensible. Just how you can sit down with a musician from somewhere else in the world. You might not be able to speak a shared language with them, but musically something meaningful can be made. And if you imagine animals can do that too, a whole world of possible collaboration suddenly opens up. Well, it's interesting about cross-cultural music because sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, some musicians really do the thing that they do. Right. And if they're meeting musicians from another culture, I had the experience of playing with Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan one time in the studio, and it was an incredible experience. I mean, I would have been very happy just to be in that room and listen to him and his group. His band was called Party, Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan and Party, not in the you know party sense. But uh, and. I had to find a way to fit in. He played Kowali music, and that's really all he would do. So it was up my responsibility to just find a way to fit in to help enhance what he was doing. Essentially, I played some drones and tried to stay away from the ornamentation. And, and his music continued as it would with or without me. But other musicians I've collaborated with, uh, Korean musicians, for instance, it's you, you can find a lot of common gestural elements, not necessarily in the uh, uh, tonality of the music, uh, uh, different cultures have different ideas of what pitch is, 
how pitches and scales and intonation is defined. But gesturally, you can often find a uh, common way of working. Um, I had the I was on the, I was running up a hill in San Francisco and I heard this piercing this bird piercing right in my ear, and I looked up and there was a hawk flying right overhead, and I got the feeling that the bird was like warning me that there was a predator around, and I was wondering if they would do that. I mean, do they have a vocabulary like that? It's interesting you bring that up because in in the 1950s when scientists first started studying bird communication more uh, seriously in, in England, Peter Marler for years was teaching at UC Davis, he discovered that five different species of British songbird made the same hawk-like sound whenever a hawk was flying overhead. <laughs> like they would make, they, they, they used that as a, as a not like a, so a song-like musical communication, but more like a language. And many of the sounds bird makes, birds make are called calls rather than songs, and these are often the sounds with a specific meaning. Ironically, perhaps, many of those sounds are innate. The birds are able to make that without having to learn them, whereas these songs have to be learned. Mm -hmm. If they don't hear the right sounds when they're young, when the baby birds will not learn to sing correctly, but they will be able to do that hawk call, you know. That's sort of like that. The more specifically sounds with a real exact meaning are innate, and the more unclear, ambiguous musical ones need to be learned. That said, do your interactions with the nightingale um, influence them on a long-term basis permanently? It's a good question. I, I mean, I don't have enough evidence to know, but I know that these certain birds seem in interested in this and others are not. Like you can find these, these certain individual birds, like, okay, here's all this music is coming out. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be part of this. You, you sense that in a kind of intuitive way. And I, don't, I don't think we're making it up. Like, you know, Part of the whole story is getting different musicians in to do this, and you know people spend more and more time with it. And they'll say like, okay, this bird. I know this one bird's really interesting. Let's go find him. And, and, and there is quite a lot of variability in terms of how much they're interested in participating. People are certain that it's the same bird. Uh, you can tell because the same tree. They're so territorial. Uh -huh. like, from year to year, it, it, it might not be so easy to tell. But I, I mm -hmm. feel like we can tell. And it may be a descendant of that same bird who has some mm. of the same qualities, who's learned it. Mm. You know. okay. But, uh, yeah. And in this Trep Tower Park area, the birds are the most documented. Like, they all have names and numbers. The scientists mm -hmm. are studying them, and so we know exactly places where they're going to come. Being yeah. that it's private, I have to ask, uh, does the nightingale male ever use a song to attract another male? Probably. Well, at least they, there's part of the, you know, they, they're always using it to, def, you know, bir bird song in many species is said to have this dual function, to attract a mate and also to defend territory against other males. I think it's pretty clear that this can get quite ambiguous. Although I haven't stood, there are plenty of cases of homosexuality in animals. I don't know if they apply to songbirds exactly. Found out, but but I think in the in the actual the purpose of this song, like defending territory, attracting a mate, and imagining that this is also different, I, I can definitely imagine them getting confused. And also, you know, many people who study bird songs say they've seen this kind of activity that is generally not acknowledged exist by biologists that a bunch of male birds are just all singing together in a tree in this kind of mad group improvisation. It doesn't seem to be territorial or, you know, about attracting a mate. They're just into it.
into it in, in this really musical way. And I have come across that with different species. And so, like, what's going on here? They're not, they don't seem to be competing. It's like a big expression of joy and pleasure and practice. Who knows, you know? And you ask about it, and people who listen a lot will say, oh, yeah, we know that's happening, but we don't know what it means. I just, I don't know if everybody knows this, but I'm with your five question. I'm from Boston, and our swan pair in the public garden are two women swans. And I guess swans don't really sing, but they're a mated pair, but they're, they're two women. How common is that among um, swans? I think it's not that common, but, you know. The swans, I mean, they really do want to raise a family, and it's a little bit hard for them. Were they raising a family, this crew? Well, they probably thought they were. But they might have been, you know, because yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think that they, I think they went through the motions, but I don't oh, think they yeah. had any small swans. But, right. but people have been photographing and documenting, like when is a male and female, a lot of the cygnets don't survive and, and you can see the swans mm. mourning yeah. when the babies get eaten and, and mm. it's, you know, they're every bit as feeling as we are probably more maybe. Yeah. So. Earlier this spring there was a bird in my neighborhood that was uh, began to sing probably about two in the morning and right through until, uh, until dawn. And uh, I don't sleep very well anyway, so I I, I recorded his his song and uh, sent it to a birder friend of mine. He identified it pretty positively as a northern mockingbird. Wow! Yeah, they would do that, and that bird would imitate mm -hmm. every sound in the neighborhood: ambulances, car alarms, <laughs> the sound that your car makes when you leave the key in the ignition. And uh, I also learned, interestingly enough, that um, mockingbirds have a window of opportunity in, in their lifespan in which they can learn new sounds. And uh, once they pass that stage, they don't alter their song, but not all birds are that limited. Most songbirds are limited like that, but birds like nightingales and canaries are not. They can learn throughout their whole lives. And through studying canaries, it was discovered that an adult canary, when he learns new songs, develops new neurons in his brain. Oh. New connections are made, which which is the basis of uh, you know the, the research and the possibility that you know you can teach an old bird new tricks. <laughs> you might be able to figure out how to renew brains that get damaged from because it, it previously wasn't believed that was possible. Oh, eagles! Did you see the trio of eagles? They are raising babies. There's uh -huh. a trio, and it's two males. And females, and they have babies. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Why not? I mean, why? Why is it surprising that in the animal world there's a range of possible family types? Absolutely. Just like in humans, there's so many species doing so many different things. There's now that we put cameras on, I started watching everybody. There's no privacy in the evil world. I, I'm not a birder at all, and I'm learning a lot at, at this event tonight. Um, very interesting. Thank you both very much. Um, last week I was in Chicago and um, at a meeting, and um, the meeting ended, and I went outside to smoke a cigarette. And it was getting dark, and all of a sudden there were all these birds, and I have no idea what they were, but they took over the whole skyscrape, and they were flying around like in schools, mm -hmm. and then they would separate and stop. Some of them would stop on, on top of like the roof or something. 
and they were large. They were they, they, the wings actually when they put out their wings, they're pretty large, and they and, but they were all sort of in tune with each other. They weren't like fighting or anything like, but there was almost like a dance, like in big groups moving. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like absolutely fascinating. And they they were some kind of a call. I want to say a hawk, but they weren't hawks. They were something else. They were some kind of mocking, perhaps a mockingbird. But it was fascinating. I, I don't, and I hadn't really seen that maybe since I was a kid. But it was just like this. This uh, there must have been maybe twenty or thirty of them. Starlings will perhaps. form large yeah. groups. If, yeah. if you go onto YouTube, you look for starling murmurations, yeah. and you can see incredible uh, waves of, yeah. of movement. But but it's but the way they, it's all lateral communication. They all look to the side. And the birds on the end will be the leaders, usually, of the movement. And then the information as to the direction is passed laterally. Oh. Flocking behavior. And it works a lot in a similar way in African drumming. A lot of area in um, the patterns are passed laterally between the musicians. Isn't it a, a evasion of predator behavior, murmurations? Maybe. There was no predator inside. Yeah, the, the, these I'm guys sure were playing or doing something. They'll also do it just, uh, they do it at sun, yeah. Yeah. sundown. Yeah. Of course, where did these starlings come from? Everybody know? They're not native to the United States. Mm -hmm. Does everyone know why we have star starlings? Mm -hmm. It's a literary reason. Because there was one guy in New York in the 1870s. He decided every bird that appeared in Shakespeare should also be in the New World. So he started letting them loose. <laughs> and many of these birds didn't take. I'm sure you released a few nightingales and they disappeared. But the house sparrow and the, the starling spread across America and were so successful that they dominate the birdscape. And wow. billions of starlings exist wow. in these huge, in these huge flocks and murmurations, and far more than there are in England. Came from that they're so they're really prospered in the states. Yeah, exactly, and you know. They're not very beloved of bird watchers because they're not native and there's too many of them. But the song, even though not so pleasant to human ears, is incredibly interesting and complicated. And it's the song that proved Noam Chomsky wrong. But he said that there's something very special about human communication is that you know, only humans can uh, make a statement and have like parentheses in it take a break and say something else and keep going onwards. And the Starling song does that. They have an exact song. It takes like a minute to sing. But they'll take a break and insert some imitations of other creatures and then keep going. And so he, he was not too pleased. <laughs> Why they do that again, we don't really know. He could afford to be wrong once in a while. Yeah, really. <laughs> so I mean, the, the, I mean, one thing to think about all these birds is every single species is like a world unto itself with so many interesting things, and hardly any of them have we studied at all. And once you get interested in, in, in I kind of seek out the unusual, more complicated bird songs. And once you learn about the more popular species, like mockingbirds and, and you know, nightingales, you, you'll, you'll learn about some other bird that's less common with this incredibly strange song no one's ever paid much attention to. You just hear one like, what is that? interesting to know. You know, on one hand we know so much about the natural world, but other things the less practical things about it, there's so much so much more to find out about and so much people haven't paid attention to. And the idea of interacting musically with the sounds of nature is something that I think many more people should do. Expand in so many ways. Because this is like the oldest music we know. It's millions of years older than the human species. There must be 
something right about it if it survived that long. <laughs> so you really do get into the interactive uh, pattern with the birds that you play outside? Well, at least it changes my sense of what of different kinds of aesthetics. Like you, you start to realize that there's a whole organization to these Nightingale songs and whole the way they use rhythm and structure, and that it's really. Um, you know, the more time you spend with it, the more sense it makes. And you realize that it's like learning some kind of music from a different part of the world that humans are making. At first, it all sounds the same. Do they have common intervals? Like pitch intervals? Yeah. Somewhat, but I think, as with many bird species, what's most generally considered more important is the rhythms. Mm -hmm. The space between the sounds and the contrast between whistles and noises and clicks. This is, 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 is more significant rather than the exact pitches. Yeah, that's where Miles Davis gets it, right? Just the sound between the notes? Not uh, the I think so. Yeah, I think he, he, he also he said that <laughs> when he came to a chord that he wasn't sure what to play, he would just leave it out. <laughs> leave it out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that became style. I think that, that makes some sense, yeah. Did the Nightingales uh, leave spaces for you to. Their song, what's great about. Sorry, Yeah, sorry interrupt because something nightingales often don't do they don't interrupt they leave space and then they wait and then boo, 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 boo. like the idea is to give a chance for the exchange that's very rare actually no it's not so rare cardinals do interesting things it's one of the species where the males and females both sing one of one of the few where that happens and that they they kind of um, I, and again, it's something interesting that isn't been studied that much. I don't know why, because the birds are kind of interesting and common. Have you listened much yeah. about cat birds? I have these cat birds yeah, that come right. every mm -hmm. year, and this year they brought way more family mm -hmm. members. And usually they're making these annoying, mm -hmm. right? So I get, and I'll sit on the deck and look at all this and just go. So I put out all these apples and oranges for them. And they were picking out all the bits in. Mm -hmm. And now they're singing me their sweetest, sweetest songs like I never have heard. There's beautiful. Well, they must like you. I mean, yeah, like you, they want to get fed again. The first sound you describe <laughs> is the call of the catbird. And the second is its song, which, again, yeah, it's very beautiful and strange, and people don't really understand it because it doesn't have repetition in identifiable patterns. But it's clearly organized in some way we can't quite grasp. It's related to the nightingale and the mockingbird. Is it? Yeah, they're related to each other. How about the Phoebe? The Phoebe is a good one. There's actually, you know, there's so many great bird song stories. There's a, a peewee, the eastern wood peewee goes, peewee, pee peewee, peewee. And also at 3 a.m. it goes, boop, boop, boop. It adds that. Okay. So that's the entire song. Just at three. So there's an ethologist, Wallace Craig. He wrote a 200-page book about the song of the wood peewee, which is an amazing book. He said this is the most beautiful and best of all bird songs. And he was he was Conrad Lorenz's professor. He was Margaret Morse Nice's professor. She's the woman who wrote two 600-page books on the songs of the song sparrow and their behavior in Columbus, Ohio, where she lived. One of the greatest ethologists of the century. And so they, they both studied with Wallace Craig, and he wrote this, this, this amazing book. Have um, you read those extensive poems? Yeah, yeah, I, I read well, both of them. I've read 1,200 pages of the songs. That's a great one. That's a, it's an amazing story, how it got written. But the Pee Wee one in particular intrigues me, that someone could pick those notes and then really want to explain why this is the most beautiful and best of all bird songs, and that person being a scientist rather than 
just wondering if you, I think it was Baptista, the wonderful Louis Baptista, yeah. 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 Who died so young. So. Yeah. But didn't he write about the sort of sensei teacher of the, the canary? And the he wrote about uh, this bird, I'm trying to remember what it was, that had dialects around the bay. I think the white crowned mm -hmm. sparrow. In different parts of the of the Bay Area, they have very distinct different songs based on where they were, like in regional dialects, which has now been found in many other species. He was the first to point that out, among his many other, you know, efforts, you know, teaching the public about birds and really being a communicator of science. But who wrote about the sensei relationship, the teacher, the teacher student? Uh, among birds, I think you know, various people, a lot of nightingale scientists, talked about it. They kept them in labs for a while and were teaching them different songs. But they, they wouldn't just learn if they heard a sound. They had to recognize a certain person, be it a human or a bird, as the teacher, or else they wouldn't learn. And it was just certain people they, they would be convinced by. Some people would go up there and play a song and the birds said, what? Others they'd recognize, okay, you can be my teacher, you can't look like the same song. Do you feel that, that you influence the birds that you played with as yeah, a teacher? certain ones. I wouldn't say that I am the teacher. I, I feel like they're teaching me. I, I'm trying to like make some music together with them. I'm trying to take them up to an equal level. And some individuals... But they're acknowledging you. They acknowledge it. I, I, I would say definitely. You know, it's not true that they're only interested in their own kinds. Nightingales are interested in sound. They like noises. Sometimes you see nightingales and blackbirds kind of competing for the same territory. They usually sing at different times of day, but sometimes they get perplexed and then they kind of interrupt each other. And then the blackbirds are a lot bigger eventually they tend to chase the nightingales away. They fed up with it. The songs are relate to each other but they're different. So we take maybe like one more question. Sure. Can I go to the signing? Yeah. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com slash events.